0: Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking with Chris Kirkland, a bootstrapped entrepreneur who's been living nomadically since 2006. He's also a headstand enthusiast and a founder of several web businesses, including artweb.com and tokyocheapo.com. Welcome to the podcast, Chris.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul. Pleasure to be here.
0: Excited to talk to you today. I thought, so I have a number of questions. Uh, I thought an interesting place to start, especially giving the name of one of your websites, Tokyo Cheapo, would be to talk about money. You said you're a bootstrapped entrepreneur. Uh, you also write about cheap things to do in Tokyo and several other cities now. On one of your posts, you wrote something about money and you wrote, we don't require vast quantities of cash to be happy. How did you come to that conclusion?
1: Well, I think there's a fairly strong scientific consensus around that. You know, it's it's uh, there's no secret that beyond a certain point of money, more money doesn't make you any more happy. Uh, Below a certain point, you know, it's difficult and you are unhappy to some extent. So uh, basically having enough money and having way more, um, there's not as big a change as you would imagine. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I've got any kind of novel insight on that. It's just uh, it's basically a scientific fact.
0: And how have you thought about that since working as a bootstrapped entrepreneur, and how you think about money? Did that change from what you were doing earlier in your career?
1: Yeah, but um, there's several stages to this. Firstly, I think um, one of the things being a bootstrapped entrepreneur gives you is freedom, and you know that's almost something that money can't pay for. You know, money can't buy. Like um, a lot of people who take this path, do it because they want to be their own boss. They want to be in control of their time. And it's exhilarating. It's tough sometimes. But, you know, most of us wouldn't trade it for doing, you know, the corporate uh, treadmill type uh, affair. So there's that sense of uh, doing it for the freedom. Um, Then, I suppose, as your path of life changes, your kind of um, budget changes. And I must confess, nowadays, like, I'm not quite as much as a cheapo as I was um kind of at the beginning but you know i'm still living in a small apartment with few possessions so in a sense i've still kind of got that cheapo ethos so um i guess another factor if you you know if you have family if you have dependents then that's obviously going to change what that sort of comfortable range of income is um but at certain point if you're kind of uh, browsing through ferrari photos thinking about buying a car then you've got to sort of ask yourself okay Is this like something that I really need? Or, you know, uh, there's this point at which we realize, okay, I shouldn't need to worry about money anymore. And uh, I think that's a fairly low bar. Right.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of self-employed people I talk to, entrepreneurs, freelancers, there's often an inverse trade-off at the beginning when you're either leaving a default path. You actually find you can get more freedom by trying to make less and creating more time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which perhaps is the only viable option to keep the path going, right? To actually create those Tokyo Tibos or the ArtWeb.com. Did you find something similar at the beginning of the journey?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was absolutely broke when I started ArtWeb.com. It was, a, you know, I had no choice but to like try something. I, You know, <laughs> right. I just got rid of my best paying client uh, who, uh, or one of my big paying clients. We sort of had a falling out and... Suddenly, I had to do something, um, and also at the time, um, uh, I don't know if it's the exact timeline, but there was a point at which I kind of moved out of my house and I was actually living in my office. And oh, wow. uh, I, I think I was at my happiest because I just reduced my overhead so low. I wasn't making a lot, but I wasn't spending a lot, and I was just like, I just felt so
0: free. Yeah, did that give you a sense of uh, power just knowing? Oh crap, I can actually just radically reduce the expenses if I need to at any time.
1: Absolutely. That kind of stoicism of realizing that you can basically live sort of sleeping rough on the floor with a small blanket. Uh, you know, having baths in the sea, I didn't have a bath in my office. So I just go to the sea and like wash (laughs) in the cold water. You know, sometimes I go to a friend's house and use their shower. But um, I just loved it. I mean, I didn't stay in that situation for more than a few months. But I just found it really empowering, really realizing that I just didn't need much.
0: That's fascinating. Do Do you think entrepreneurship, people are most drawn to it because those type of experiences almost come as part of it or forced and it's hard to kind of create those exercises for yourself on your own
1: i think people are drawn to it for different reasons i always think of myself as being quite risk averse although my life probably contradicts that (laughs) but uh what drew, drew me in was the freedom but you know you definitely get some people who are just um you know they like the roller coaster ride that's just what they are familiar and comfortable with
0: so you ended up in Japan after taking a trip there, and basically deciding to not board the return flight back. First, I'd love to hear. Like I hear this from so many people in Asia. Why are so many people uh, staying in Asia and not boarding their return flights back?
1: Well, I would say Japan is a different place to Asia. It's That's its own true. Country. Yeah, it's a it's a high so wage um,
0: high wage place as well. It yeah, can be expensive. I mean, it's-
1: it's not the obvious place to go when you're doing the kind of location um location independent sort of lifestyle arbitrage because it's not that cheap to be here um but it's um i i mean in my particular case i was just sort of wanted to try somewhere new and um coming from the west you can't get more different than japan really it's uh, it's a fascinating place um in many senses, it's a very comfortable place. It's very kind of, you know, the trains run on time. It's spotlessly clean. So um, I think for a certain type of people, it's very alluring.
0: Yeah, that definitely resonates. I think Taipei has a similar uh, vibe. It's it's still one of these places that's very uh, homogenous, like Japan, and the culture is very different, um, but also has all the things you need to kind of uh, live, similar to cities, uh, all over the yeah. world.
1: Yeah, it's certainly, uh, I mean, I've spent time in, uh, Southeast Asia, other places in Europe, uh, even briefly in India. Um, I couldn't see myself like, you know, maybe I would miss a flight out of, um, Thailand, but Fair. I don't think I would stay there for 10 years. You know, I'd like, okay, I want to g- go back somewhere where it's clean. So, uh, Uh, Yeah, but maybe some people in Southeast Asia, they get hooked on the nice weather and the cheap food. So it's probably uh, down to sort of personal preferences.
0: So, what shifted from, okay, I'm going here for a trip to, okay, I'm going to stay here?
1: Well, the backstory for Japan was um, it was already in the back of my mind that I wanted to move to Japan. So, um, this was meant to be like a sort of reconnaissance mission. I was going to come over for five weeks. sort of test it out maybe see who i could meet laying the foundations for moving back six months to a year later um but uh, at the back of my mind i knew it was a possibility that i would just decide to stay and after two days i was just uh i don't know if i can swear on this mm-hmm. podcast but i was just fuck it i'm not going to go home i'm just staying here so uh, i suppose i'd already kind of planned in advance to move to japan and i just moved slightly earlier than i'd intended
0: yeah and what was your plan like once you mentally committed to staying there how were you thinking about uh either work sustaining your your life um trying to hack a living
1: so i was uh quite a bit younger and more um uh uh, i don't know idealistic and um uh maybe more uh, comfortable with doing crazy things um so that was part of it. But um, I already had a job, so to speak, because I'd already founded Artweb. I had my first, um, at the time, sort of semi-successful internet business. So I didn't really need to go looking for money. All I really needed to do was to figure out the logistics of actually living in Japan. You know, things like what kind of visa would I have to apply to? How do you rent an apartment? Um, you know, just like the basics, so um, it was actually fairly easy for me because I had half the equation already solved. I wasn't really looking for money. It was just like the logistics of moving there.
0: Right. And how was running a business online back then? I, I know everything was pretty, uh, pretty early in terms of digital online. Uh, maybe Japan was even more advanced than the U.S. or uh, Britain at that point. But uh, I, I know things just didn't work pretty much.
1: Yeah, it was... Very different. I mean, like Skype calls were really difficult. Like there was much less tech available. Cloud services were just starting up. You know, uh, it, it was much more kind of you know being like an early pioneer. A lot of stuff was a lot harder. Um, but the main thing was, is it was so new and novel. Like nobody was doing this. I almost felt like I was cheating. Right. I'd like be, I, I was in the center of Tokyo the sort of tall office building looking out over all the skyscrapers like doing a skype with somebody in the uk who had no idea that i was in japan you know i was speaking to one of the artists for art web and i just felt like you know i was just sort of deceiving this person in some way but of course it's pretty normal now you know we're used to just kind of um you know you phone the bank and you're half expecting to be routed to you know some other country
0: yeah you have no idea where that call is actually going
1: yeah So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there was the experience for me of being quite kind of uh, like just novel. Um, And then I suppose, you know, the technology foundations were there. So it was doable and um, it was easier than it was before. You know, technology just iterates and improves. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was good fun.
0: So you're still living nomadically, living out of a few different locations you keep going back to. What convinced you that this was kind of a journey or a way of working, a way of being that you wanted to keep going on indefinitely?
1: So um, I suppose in a sense, I've stopped the traveling and uh, I've, as quite a few people do who live this lifestyle, you tend to sort of converge on a few specific destinations and you basically sort of live in one place and visit other places. Right. That's, that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, I had, uh, uh, I had kind of several stages in this journey. The first one was basically going to Japan. Um, i would had like a little taste of working remotely when I was in India and then like moving to Japan was like my first real taste of kind of being remote even though I was relatively static because I was in Japan for a few years. Then I had like a kind of full on sort of remote hopping around three months here, two months there, six months here. Um, but about five, six years ago, um, I basically, you know, set roots down in Tokyo. I'm kind of taxpayer here. I rent an apartment here. Um, and I'm here, you know, seven to eight months of the year.
0: So you've done a ton of creative things. Uh, I mean, just go to, I'll link up to your website, but you talk about music ventures you're doing, coding ventures you're doing, um, your websites, your writing. Uh, Where does that energy come from? Have you always been wired to create? I know from an early age you were in a band. Um, Yeah, where does this all come from for you?
1: Well, my mother is an artist and my father used to work at IBM as a programmer, so uh, I think just the sort of natural product of those two forces. Uh, you know, my mum was always immensely creative. She was always, like, cheering us on, like, doing drawings and writing stories. Uh, and then, you know, there's my dad, the sort of calm in the background with this sort of logical programmer mindset. So uh, I guess it's just like a natural progression. In a sense, I think every everybody really has, like, a basic sort of creative core. Um, it's not always that, Uh, visible but it's definitely there so i think it's probably mostly to do with my upbringing like i had you know uh, great parents that just allowed me to do my crazy ideas um all the way from childhood through to adulthood
0: right how did tokyo cheapo start
1: so uh very simple really me and um a good friend greg lane we were in a cheap izakaya uh, which is like a sort of tapas Bar, Japanese tapas bar, and we were just like discussing ideas of new businesses that we could start because um, we we're both looking to do something new. And amongst some of the sort of software as a service ideas we came up with, there was a moment of calm, and we were both like, "Yeah, nobody's done a site about Tokyo on the cheap, have they?" I'm like, "Yeah, we should do that. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do that." And you know, a week later, threw up a free WordPress theme. We like bashed out a few articles. Because both of us had lived as bootstrapped entrepreneurs in Tokyo. Um, You know, neither of us had ever really made that much money. We'd made enough, but we'd basically been used to being cheapos. And uh, Japan is actually quite a cheap country. It's not, you know, it's not like um, Vietnam or something, but um, it has this reputation for being super expensive. And that probably comes from the 80s, when Japan was seen to be taking over the world. But basically, since about 1992... Everything has stayed the same price, right? Basically, it's it's pretty cheap here. Yeah,
0: and is food similar to other places um, in Asia that it's relatively affordable as long as you're kind of going to the right spots? It's
1: very affordable. Uh, I mean, you can throw three hundred dollars on a meal, but you can also spend three dollars. It's you know the the ramen, the soba noodles, the rice bowls. Um, You know, you can get meals in those restaurants for anything from $3. So, uh, yeah, and the quality is amazing. It's um, like the sort of cost performance for food in Tokyo and indeed the whole of Japan is very good.
0: I like that as a metric, uh, cost performance of food. (laughs) Uh, So what started to resonate uh, as that started gaining some readers in uh, Tokyo? Was it uh, how you were positioning it? Was it just literally that nobody was writing about these things? Because um, I know the landscape, especially the like blogging and media world, was a bit different um, when you guys were starting.
1: Um, so even when we started, it was 2012. You know, starting another blog in 2012 <laughs> seemed like a crazy idea. Um, but the specific landscape for media about Japan, um, there weren't that many good websites and no one has focused on this sort of content about Tokyo on the cheap. It really stood out. It was a very distinct idea. We started getting good signs. People liked the site. We got good comments and literally every month we just saw the traffic going up and up. So we kind of fairly early on knew that we must be onto a good thing.
0: What has changed, uh, as you've run that site from the beginning and how you think about running it now?
1: I suppose the scale and the fact that it's, you know, it's a serious business now. Like when we started, it was just Greg and I sort of doing it as a side project. Um, After a year, we realized that it was going to continue growing. So we hired an editor and started like hiring people to write instead of doing it ourselves who would commission uh, freelance writers to do some of the articles, um, and uh, that kept on increasing. We would get more traffic, we'd have more writers, and um, the site started to make a little bit of money. Um, certainly enough to pay for the editor and some of the writers. But after about four years, we got to the point where it was, you know, a nice amount of traffic, but it was just taking up so much of our time, and we realized, okay, we've either got to turn this into a profitable business. Or we need to just keep it as a side project because it's just too much of a distraction. We need to actually pay the bills. So basically, the story of the last few years has been the business side. And um, that's gone really well. And um, so, yeah, we've kind of we're probably about 10 full time staff with another uh, on any given month. You know, there's up to sort of 20, 30 people on the payroll, including all the different freelancers and part timers.
0: Wow. So what have you started to learn about managing remote teams through that? I I mean you were working as a remote worker and then now you have your own team. Uh what is what is that looking like in today's world? I know there's a lot more written about how to manage uh freelance remote teams and perhaps I think it's kind of natural in uh the media world, but uh what stands out for you?
1: Oh god, it's a big topic that. <laughs> I think um, the first thing I'd say having been doing remote work for you know, one and a half decades is um, to a certain sort of basic functional level, it's quite easy, especially with today's tools. But to really do it properly, you really have to go that extra mile on learning how to use the tools properly, learning how to commute, um, sorry, communicate properly with people in remote teams um and like learning to compensate for the disadvantages of being in remote teams so i'd say basically going from the basic functionality to actually doing it properly it's a pretty big step and it's something that we still struggle with now where you know a lot of our work is just sort of figuring out how to compensate for the miscommunications from being a mostly remote team
0: yeah that's uh yeah, I think a lot of people take that for granted, right? We think we can just operate like we do when we have colleagues that just work from home for the day, right? And people mm-hmm. kind of underestimate all those in-person interactions to kind of make people feel comfortable with each other or just uh, level out those uh, miscommunications.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's huge. I mean, we're, we're social animals and remote work is just not what we were designed for. So you really have to um, understand that you're kind of pushing against human nature and take steps to um, kind of counteract that. Right.
0: You've recently launched HongKongCheapO.com, which personally I definitely need to uh, tap into next time I go there. That place is uh, quite expensive. But um, yeah. <laughs> definitely going to check that out. Um, I also saw, I mean, if you go to your high-level page, you have... Um, every part of the continent and potential areas of the world listed out. What's the vision for this? Are you guys thinking, uh, cheapo for the 100 biggest cities in the world? How are you thinking about it?
1: Yeah, potentially. I think it's a model. um, So far, it's going well. We've got three cities now, Tokyo, London, Hong Kong. Um, And I don't see why it wouldn't continue to work as we expand to other cities. So, yeah, definitely our vision is uh, a global cheaper network
0: and has your mindset around that shifted to almost building the operating system for how you kind of launch this in different areas or is that kind of still evolving and molding
1: yeah we're still fairly early on i think um doing three cities is going to be quite a different operation to doing 30 and then more um so we're we're basically at that stage where we're thinking about the next steps now you know what's the what's the operating system of that kind of uh, company? what's the different moving parts, how do they coordinate? Um, we've got a certain amount of learning from coming this far, but I think um, you know there's probably quite a few lessons that uh, still lie ahead of us.
0: So I'd love to shift gears here and just um you put down to ask you about burnout and extreme dietary experiments you said these are somewhat related but i'd love to just offer that as a starting point um to hear about when did you face burnout when did this emerge and how are you thinking about kind of what that process was like
1: so uh yeah i this this could be quite a, a long topic i'll uh try and kind of uh do a a macro overview and we can decide what to zoom in. Yeah, we can zoom in. Uh, so the extreme diet, um, leads into the burn burnout. So, uh, fairly early on, um, in my life, I was already, uh, I'd started doing martial arts. I'd done meditation. I tried fasting, uh, tried like kind of sleep experiments. Um, so i had I've kind of always been quite experimental and always happy to sort of try doing extreme things um, fairly early in my life I had a quite a um, an influential figure in my life I had a I met I um, uh, met somebody when I was nineteen very kind of talented um, uh, interesting creative person and we became good friends and he was a bit older so he was kind of like a mentor to me and um, you know he was maybe crazier than I was. So, uh, but I loved it. You know, I've been kind of learning all these things, learning martial arts and uh, sort of, it was really, it was really kind of interesting ride. Anyway, to cut a long story short is this um, rather strange woman uh, called Yasmaheen came to our city to talk about being a breatharian. And um, I thought, well, that sounds a bit silly, like just living off breath and food's quite nice. Anyway, we went to see this talk and I thought it was a bit sort of, uh, um, you know, a bit too new age. However, my friend was really taken by this. And the next day announced that he was going to follow this woman's process and become a breatharian. And I was like, oh, well, I'd better do it as well then, you know, because he was very influential. He was like a sort of mentor to me. and I was also very competitive, so I didn't like the idea of him doing this thing, me not doing um, right. Yeah, I you know, I was quite young and I was a little bit more naive then, so uh, it's obviously a mental idea. It makes no sense and it's yeah, utter so, nonsense.
0: So maybe we can define what a breatharian is. So um firstly disclaimer, don't do this. It's a very <laughs> bad
1: idea. You will die if you don't eat food. Um but the idea of being a breatharian is you know, there's some some kind of mystic ability to be able to live off your breath alone, not to need to consume food anymore and it, this is different from fasting you know I'm a very I'm a fan and an advocate for um, you know carefully controlled fasting that is a healthy activity but just stopping eating altogether does end in you dying because <laughs> you know the human body the animal body requires food anyway um, that's the definition of breatharian so specifically she had this sort of 30-day process uh, oh, sorry, 21 day process. It's like a sort of three week process that you go through, which is basically eating nothing for three weeks. And then you're meant to be converted to being a breatharian. Um, anyway, um, it's difficult to kind of tell the story short, but you get the background. I was kind of young and impressionable and I was sort of following my mentor down this crazy journey. And um, I was quite um, open to crazy ideas. And um, we, you know, we went through this three-week process, which was quite difficult, Um, quite dangerous, because the first seven days, um, you're not meant to drink anything. So it's actually no food or water for seven days, which is very dangerous. Yeah, You know, generally, the human body shouldn't be able to survive that long. Uh, I think in our case, we were just like at home and we were very relaxed and committed to this process. We weren't like kind of, stranded after an aircraft crash or something. So maybe that, um, you know, it's not something I would suggest anybody test, but we we seem to have emerged, you know, without um, uh, harm after that seven day period. Anyway, at the end of this period, I basically kind of, uh, you know, I was believing in this process and I thought, okay, great, I'm a breatharian now. I can just wander around the world. I don't need to worry about eating anymore. But um, uh, trying to keep this story fairly short, um, we, you know, we returned to kind of snacking and eating little things. Because one of the things she said in this book is, you know, breatharian doesn't need food, but you can eat things just for entertainment if you want to. Ah, so uh, That's a
0: good safety valve.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, uh, you know, we returned to kind of eating sort of snacky type things. You know, I had a very unhealthy diet for... A, few years following that, but I gradually sort of faded back into more normal eating, but never really eating that much. So I kind of had this really weird diet where I sort of still kind of believed that I didn't need to eat, but was eating. And, um, uh, yeah, that was probably one of the main causes of my burnout, like this kind of extended period of probably about eight years where I wasn't really eating a very healthy diet. Um, and then coupled with, um, I got into trying to kind of, uh, sleep less, like this oh, wow. polyphasic sleep stuff.
0: Yeah. it's um, where you sleep like half an hour at a time or an hour at a time. Something yeah, like that.
1: It just don't do it. It's a really bad idea. And like, I kind of, I did get, you do kind of get this sort of buzz and I had this, uh, incredible energy, but it was like this sort of wired energy. It just, uh, now I know my body better. I know like it was giving me warning signs. But yeah. um, I was just in this, this phase where I kind of believed I was invincible. I believed I didn't need to eat. I didn't need to sleep much. I could kind of achieve anything. And then sure enough, like reality caught up with me. And I got this throat infection. And it kind of didn't go away. And I was ill for about a month. And basically I um, ended up in this situation with what they call chronic fatigue, which is mm-hmm. basically you're kind of tired and they don't really know why. And um, so I went from this kind of high energy, sort of super wired, enthusiastic state to basically being in a position where I I couldn't really work. I had just such low energy. And um, uh, yeah, it was a real kind of struggle for several years. And um, uh, I'm pretty sure perhaps I should talk a little bit about my recovery from that process.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear about the recovery. I think also it's fascinating. I I know, I mean, I was reading about a lot of this stuff as it was happening too. It seems like there's been a huge evolution just in terms of like the knowledge that's out there, either through podcasts or different um, kind of professionals now even sharing knowledge. That's, uh, it's actually kind of come a long way just in terms of all these kind of personal development things, right? Um, Now you see like really good sleep um, insights you can learn from online. Whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was more of these uh, edge cases.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing is like the human body can do extreme things, um, but it does have its limits and it certainly have, it does, you know, if something gets chronic, then it's a real problem. So maybe you can do these peak experiences for brief bursts, but in the long term, you can't get away from that basic healthy lifestyle, which is like good food, good sleep, good social life, enough exercise. Um, So basically my, my recovery process was just discovering that the hard way, just like trying all kinds of things to get healthy again. Um, At first I was trying to, to get healthy by doing things, because, you know, I was always a doer. That's kind of what yeah. led me to that extreme experimental life. But uh, in the end, I realized I just needed to sleep more. I just needed to chill out and kind of allow my body to recover. And, uh, yeah, you know, after some years and sort of slowly coming around to realizing the truth, I'm, you know, back in top form again now.
0: That's fantastic. I uh, I think that resonates as well. I went through somewhat of a health challenge, not as long as... Uh, it doesn't sound as intense as you did, but it was often frustrating, kind of the pace of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably, like, just recovering and trying to let my body, like, heal itself was such a painfully slow uh process, but one you kind of just have to trust intuitively, Yeah. Um, and it's very hard, right, if you're used to analytically assessing things and trying to take action. And um, I know that was kind of a real big shift for me. And it sounds like uh, you kind of had that shift, too. And now you're thinking a lot more about how can I sustain this life in a healthy way?
1: It's the, um, it's the rabbit and the hare, really. Sorry, the, um, the tortoise and the hare, or the rabbit and the tortoise. I forget the exact story. But, um, you know, slow and steady, that's how you were the race, just kind of like listening to your body, getting good sleep. In the long term, this, it really pays evidence. Like don't get distracted by the kind of fast-paced um, burst-like things. That's, that can only last for a moment. It's like the kind of be like the tortoise, slow and steady, just constantly, um, you know, over the long term, doing things kind of slowly and carefully and doing it well.
0: Yeah, I love that. I also just want to pause here and say that the, uh, the podcast does not endorse uh, breatharian uh, <laughs> t- <laughs> techniques, <laughs> and um, consult your physician before uh, going down these roads. Um, but I, I also think like it's um, it's challenging, right? I'm sure with the fasting from the breatharian experiment, you probably experience some sort of like uptick from like entering a ketosis state yeah Um, and it's easy to kind of be like oh wow there's actually something here
1: yeah i mean it's great i still do um at least one seven day fast a year and it's so good you just feel amazing but um it's not something that can last forever that ketosis state is something you should use um with care and i don't know some people do it long term but i'm I like the principle of um you kind of fast every now and then as a purge and I think there's a lot of scientific um confirmation of that now that that's a that's a good uh, regimen.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've been digging into that as well. I can link up to a couple things uh in the show notes if people are interested. Um I'd love to go back to the beginning of your story and talk about you losing your first $50,000. Um, I'd first just love to note, like you, you list kind of your year by year, decade by decade achievements. I'm wondering like <laughs> w- w- what in that year makes you list that as the uh, descriptor of what happened?
1: Well, I always think, um, you're not really an entrepreneur until you've had like some massive failure.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I, I, I think it's some people get there without making big mistakes, but they are the exception that proves the rule. Like um, I do know some people who've kind of got lucky and first time they were successful, but then they go on to lose it because they, they, they're disillusioned. They, they think it was easy and they can do it again, but they were just lucky. uh, I I think it's a good thing to um, uh, sort of advocate for going through a failure. And it's, it's not something that's like that bad. As long as you, you, your limits, you limit the downsides and, you know, you don't want to kind of go lose everything like later in your career. You know, if you can do it early on, then it's great. Or even halfway through. So um, that's kind of why I made it as an achievement. Um, the actual story, um, it actually ties into the breatharian story. It was through the same mentor. Um, we actually, um, we were doing all kinds of projects together and we started a, a business using air quotes, kind of business in quotes. Um, and it was this sort of harebrained idea of making some sort of creative center or music studio, um, you know, all the kind of classic bad business ideas rolled up into one basically. And, um, what it manifest as was, uh, I had it skills and I was actually bringing some money in by doing things like, um, web design, it training, And I was, you know, a little bit of money was coming in. So it kind of looked like a business. Meanwhile, meanwhile, my partner was spending the money. I was was spending at twice the velocity we were making the money and kind of buying studio equipment. And um, the problem was he was kind of the older, wiser person. So I just sort of had faith in what he was doing. And, you know, I was just watching our bank balance go down and down and down. But I thought, well, obviously he's got a plan. Um, And of course, you know, you can imagine how the story turns out. Basically, we ended up um, uh, falling out in a major way and we hadn't set up an LLC. It was a a partnership. So Uh I was on hook for all of the money. Um, You know, we both were. And um, yeah, basically, uh, we burnt through. Uh, I think it was about 30,000 pounds, which is at the time it was about $50,000. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I had to, I had to pay off about 10 grand of debt. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a lesson, quite a life lesson. But um, I bounced back pretty quickly. Once I was back doing stuff on my own and I didn't have a partner who was spending money quite as fast as I could make it, I soon, you know, I managed to write a check about a year later to just pay the debt off in one go,
0: yeah um, very uh very sensible uh business entrepreneurship advice avoid uh partners who are uh, mostly just spending money <laughs> um, but easier said than done, right I think we uh a lot of these things are hard as you're doing it to uh kind of step back and realize what you're doing
1: yeah, I mean business partnership it's like choosing a wife or a husband. And, you know, you you don't want to jump straight into it. You want to kind of move into it slowly and, and like get to know each other and, you know, get a sense of what they're going to be like with kids or with the access to your bank account.
0: So you've settled into uh, more, I guess I would say, stable. You're still traveling to a few different locations uh, throughout the year. But how do you think about just, or focusing your energy on a day like you waking up today how do you think about how you're spending your time and uh um what you're working on
1: that's the million dollar question i think it's really important to um just kind of focus on your daily routines because that's ultimately what makes the difference you know the the wind moves mountains over times so over time so how you kind of spend your individual days really counts um i guess in my case um my particular routines i always like to start with uh, a nice slow morning routine doing some sort of exercise listening to podcasts so i kind of have this um you know my body's always in a good state by the time i start working i tend to try and do most of my um kind of deep work uh you know the high priority Or sorry, the important stuff—not necessarily high priority—but the important stuff early in the day because I'm usually a morning person. And then, like in the afternoons, I reserve those more for like meetings and uh, conversations and just sort of um, less taxing tasks. You know, like if I just need to sort of enter stuff into a spreadsheet. Um, But you know, running a kind of growing business—like every day is different. There's always fires to put out. There's always new things. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I try and, I try and kind of practice mindfulness. That's a key, um, story that's always been there for me. I, I try and kind of be mindful, but it is difficult, you know, with like all kinds of things pulling for my attention. Um, I'm often, you know, a miserable failure at being mindful.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of your writing too, you're pretty honest about the process and, uh, your intention, too, especially as a leader in a remote company, trying to be pretty people-centric and just kind of cut out the BS and uh, complexity of what a lot of people default to in running a business. How, how did you uh, come to that mindset? Has that just always been how you're kind of wired?
1: I think so, yeah. I think um, I've, uh, I've never been afraid to do things differently, well, certainly that's how I started my adult life. So um, uh, maybe, maybe it's a lot to do with the early days when I was more focused around making music and creating things. Which is a very, you know, that's a very sort of um, you're communicating to people. You know, ultimately, being an artist, you're communicating something very personal. So I was always kind of quite used to like being, uh, you know, very direct about um and very honest about feelings so for me uh it just seems quite natural to sort of um you know try and be empathetic try and understand people um so i think uh maybe partly to do with music maybe partly to do with just i was kind of born that way
0: fantastic Any, any, uh, reading or kind of, you said you listen to podcasts every morning. What's kind of inspiring you these days or, uh, things you keep coming back to, to learn from?
1: So for podcasts, I kind of bounce around quite a lot of different podcasts. Um, I got, uh, I got sucked into the intellectual dark web completely by accident I started listening to a Sam Harris podcast because he's a really good meditation teacher, but he also, um, you know, gets embroiled in politics and I found it quite interesting. And like a year later, I'd kind of bounced around all of these, um, IDW podcasts and suddenly realized that I'd spent a year learning about identity politics and all these things, which, um, I you know it's interesting but I'd much rather spend my podcast time on things like listening to startup stories and right. you know maybe like historical things or uh, or even just fiction so nowadays I I try and kind of um I try and find more business podcasts um lately I've quite enjoyed the financial times startup stories uh, series they're um fairly short um and very varied uh, interviews with different uh, company founders. Um, I, I quite like it because it's a it's a British um, uh, production, so I, I quite enjoy uh, hearing with the British accent. Because so many podcasts are Americans, <laughs> we, and
0: we have unbridled enthusiasm for podcast creation, indeed. And many of them are
1: great, but it's uh, you know just personal. I just enjoy hearing a British accent every now and then. So uh, that's uh, startup stories by. The FT, I've, I've quite enjoyed them.
0: So I'd love to close with your headstands, which I thought was really fun and just kind of an expression of who you are. Um, for people who are listening, of course, this is uh, a sight of you just in headstands around the world. And I think you can buy the pictures, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but how did that start?
1: Well, it was very simple. I was in um, Berlin visiting my good friend, Thomas Schelp, who's an excellent photographer. And he said, OK, Chris, let's go out and take some photos. So we went into town with his camera. And um, I think it was the middle of the winter. So there's snow everywhere. And anyway, he said, Chris, do something interesting. So I started doing <laughs> handstands and trying you know, different poses. And then at one point, I just did a headstand. And as he was kind of taking lots of photos, I just suddenly pulled my hands to my side. And he took the photo in the split second it looked like i was just on my head doing a headstand with no hands and uh we were like oh that was cool and then so we spent the rest of the afternoon wandering around berlin doing more of these photos of me on my head and basically that's how it started and uh since then i've uh, where have i done kuala Lumpur, tokyo uh thailand uh, london buckingham palace tate gallery uh you know every now and then um i'll just kind of get into position do a headstand whip up my hands and uh split seconds i look like i'm uh, balancing on my head with no hands my um repository of everything i do is on mrkirkland.com that's uh that's probably like the sort of central place if you anyone's curious to uh seeing my various uh creative outlets and business projects
0: I actually know a couple of people who listen to the podcast who are probably going to visit Tokyo. Maybe you could give us uh, some interesting recommendations for Tokyo based on uh, uh, things you write or have discovered uh, over the last several years.
1: Well, I could fill uh, a whole podcast series. <laughs> Go
0: to com, right?
1: Yeah. Well, the... Um I think the the, the basics are if, if you've never been here before, then don't worry too much. Just like just turning up is already interesting. Like going to a convenience store and seeing how the staff serve you, um, you know, just riding on a subway. All the basic experiences are quite interesting. So, I wouldn't say you've got to kind of have this sort of must-do list. Like just being in Tokyo is already quite an experience. Um, what else? Um, Has so many tips really. Um, If you're coming in the spring or the autumn, that's the peak season, so make sure you book accommodation well in advance. Um, It's quite nice to be based in the sort of Shibuya general area, maybe not Shibuya itself, but within like a sort of 30 to 40 minute walk. That's like um, where most of the um, interesting nightlife is. And because it's such a big city and the train stopped fairly early. It can be quite inconvenient if um, you know you're having to kind of check your watch to make sure you don't miss the last train at eleven twenty pm. Um, but if you stay in the Shibuya area, then you know worst case scenario is your kind of not too expensive taxi drive back to your hotel or a- apartment.
0: And is there like great cheap food tip you'd leave people with?
1: Yep, Japanese food, um, standing sushi. Uh, standing soba noodles in stations. So basically, if they're saving on floor space by having no seats, you know you're getting maximum sort of cost performance. You know, the the food is going to be the best sort of cost performance in those places. So, uh, yeah, the standing sushi, the conveyor belt sushi, the ramen noodles, soba noodles, those kind of classic, um, you know, local Japanese eateries are the cheapest and always very good quality.
0: Any last advice you might want to leave to people? I think a lot of people that listen to my podcast are either thinking about carving new paths or are freelancers or self-employed already. What can they learn from your journey over the past uh, 13 plus years? So
1: I think um, it's good to take risks, but don't push it too far like I did. (laughs) So, uh, yeah.
0: Headstands, not breath. Yes, Exactly. So yeah, take take well
1: calculated risks. I think that's um, the art of being an entrepreneur. Is it's not like going into a casino where you're just gambling, you know? Make take well calculated risks.
0: Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Work podcast. It's been such a fun journey to start this podcast, start getting random feedback from around the world, and to continue to meet and have conversations with such amazing people who really helped me learn and in some ways have started to become my friends. I think a podcast I've started to push a lot of people to create podcasts can be this hack almost to uh, jump through the hoops of the awkwardness of networking that people don't like and actually get down to have a deeper conversation, and I found it's been pretty cool to do that. Um, I want to keep this as basically a fun, creative endeavor. I don't want to have ads. I think there are a lot of ads out there that you can basically just give a coupon code. And you get pretty small dollars on the advertising. I've looked into it. Um, I think it's kind of annoying when you're listening to things, though. I think podcast advertising is probably the least bad of any uh, advertising i've seen anyway if you feel compelled to support the podcast i have a patreon page right now that is probably the main way to support so i think for me asking for contribution or support is really a selfish motive i'd like to dedicate more of my time to creating writing helping people having these conversations And just spending a lot more time thinking deeply, reading books, uh, writing about these topics. And if you think that's something worth doing, uh, I'd love to see the show of support. If you have feedback on the podcast, guests you want me to talk to, want to make comments on my monotone voice, you can send them my way. I take any and all comments and just love the support. Uh, Thanks so much for the people listening, and let's keep reimagining work. Hey, all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support, and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership. And you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.